Welcome to the second series of By Design. My name is Bruce Boucher, and I'm director of Sir John Soane's Museum. Soane's idea for his museum was to be an academy of the arts, where art, architecture, and design could be discussed, explored, and celebrated. It's with this in mind that we have collaborated with Luke Irwin, the distinguished rug designer, who feels passionately about the role of design and whose support has been fundamental to this series. Chaired by Alice Roththorne, design writer and critic, and Will Gompertz, artistic director at the Barbican, these talks explore the impact of design on several internationally renowned designers. And you can find podcasts of the first series on our website, sewn.org. For this second series, we invited Dan Pearson, Ilsa Crawford, Erda Moraliolu, Amanda Levite, and Phyllida Barlow to present an object that has inspired them, and through that object, to reflect on their own design practice. We originally launched the second series in February 2020 with Alice Roththorne talking to the designer Dan Pearson at the Sone, and we're pleased to present the remaining talks through a series of individual events filmed at the museum. Thanks to our collaboration with Luke Irwin, we are not charging for these talks, but it would be wonderful if you would consider making a contribution, which would enable us to continue our wider learning programs, and you can do so on Sone.org. I hope you enjoyed the talk. Welcome to the Sir John Soane Museum. I'm sitting in the library and dining room, which is an amazing space, pretty much alone, a couple of camera people, a producer, and most importantly, our guest for this episode of By Design. She's a sculptor of world renown who really only came to public attention after she retired from teaching after 40 years, 20 years of which were at the Slade School. That was in 2009. Since then, she's been represented by one of the biggest art galleries in the world. She had a huge show at Tate Britain in the Devine Galleries and was selected in 2017 to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale. She is, of course, you'll have guessed by now, Philida Barlow. Philida, welcome to By Design. Welcome to the Sir John Soane Museum. The first thing you've got to do is a job, which is to select an object in this wonderful treasure trove of a place that means something specifically to you. I think the physical encounter here, where the little passageways are so narrow and you sometimes think it's a cul-de-sac, but it isn't, mm. is exactly what my relationship with sculpture has always been, that the walking around it, the, the physical encounter of this object in front of you, for me, isn't just the image. It's the actual presence of that yeah. materiality and physical thing. And sometimes maybe I've got part of my brain is missing or something. I can't actually remember the image of some of the, the sculptures I have seen and have loved, but I have remembered something about the time element and the circumnavigation of the work and the, the sense of wanting to touch, you know, is it cold, is it hot, is it smooth, is it... Yeah. Right? All those sentient and sensory qualities yeah. have always been... In incredibly important and that encounter I see as very like establishing a relationship you know it's the beginning of a relationship which is quite abstract and unformed in a way and I suppose that's something I admire about sculpture it's fearless in how it wants to make its present felt to a viewer yes. so the viewer becomes psychologically and emotionally engaged from the off you, and I think this is what this museum is for me. Yes, and I think there's something else some, about it which is worth 
commenting on from, from your point of view as, as, as a sculptor, which is, it's not just the fact that there's lots of sculptures spread about, it's mm. about this, the fact they're spread about in this place, mm. and therefore it's how sculptures affect the space they're in. If you took all this stuff out and put it somewhere else, it would be different, wouldn't mm. it? Exactly, yes, yeah. Therefore I think this word, the encounter, yes. not just of ourselves as warm-blooded creature meeting still, silent things, but in a very fanciful way, what is the object itself, if you like, in inverted commas, feeling? You know, what is its role in relationship to us? You know, and I, I, I know that's fanciful, and, but I often want to think about that. There is something extraordinary about, I mean, extraordinarily unreal about this place, as though you are in a back-to-front world, you know. And uh, as I was saying earlier, a lot of the things here are cast. Yes, so the plaster cast, yeah. Yes, mm. plaster casts. Mm. So the original is somewhere else, so you've again got this other dislocation. Yes. So I, I think for me, it's in the sense that sculpture is, to me, one of the most difficult, awkward, and at times hideous um, art mediums going. I think it is also one of the most sort of radical in that it plays with theatre and theatricality. Absolutely. And I, th I think this place does as well. I think John Soane must have had a great sense of the theatrical and the theatrical encounter where yes. his audience would be standing, where his viewer would be standing and what the actual vista was. And, you know, how, how do you choose an object? I can't yes. choose a single object from it? this. Yes. And therefore, for me, it is the whole experience. The object is the whole experience of being. Is that what you're saying, Philip DiBarlo? So you're, you're, you're not choosing, this is like, I feel like I'm on Desert Island Discs. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you, as opposed to choosing one book, you've chosen a library. Yes. So, so, so you're saying yeah. you, you, can't, exactly. you can't choose a single object in the zone. You are just choosing yes. the zone as an experience. Yes, as an experience. And in a way, when you look at the facade of the houses that constitute the soap, Soane Museum, you have no idea what yeah. this interior is. And to me, that is a very sculptural experience, you know, that you're entering. Um, when you first encounter a sculpture, you may not know what's happening on the other side of it. And that walk around it is constantly revealing 360 degrees of different views of something. And this is what the interior of this building is for me, you know, constantly being woken up to a new view and a new passageway, a new way of looking down or looking up. Yes. And um, that, that to me is almost, despite all the objects that are there, they're almost at the periphery of my vision. And then suddenly something catches my attention. So how do you tackle somewhere like the zone? I mean, what do you let lead you through it? Are you looking for sight lines? Is it, is it light? Is it a smell? Is it, is it a, a, an object? What is it that helps you navigate a space like this? I think it is the sight lines and is mm. the, the, 
the difficulty in remembering where you've just come from. Yes. And, where, and then suddenly something catches my attention. One of the first things that really caught my attention here was three panels of, I think they're terracotta paving stones down. Uh, they're just through behind to the right of us there. And in a way, they're quite humble yeah. objects. But I thought they were absolutely staggeringly beautiful. Just the, these probably 30 centimeter square, three panels, glowing red, each one slightly different, each one worn from thousands of foot, foot treads on them. So they carry that sense of touch with them right through to now, even though they're covered in glass, you're aware of how they've been Do you feel worn history? Away. Do, you, do, you, do you feel history? Do you feel stories in the objects that you see? Not necessarily stories, but just the incredible, in, incredible endeavour, the incredible human endeavour, mm. and what we leave behind, yeah. and what that evidence is, and then what kinds of brutalities like Palmyra being blown up and the Buddhas in Afghanistan being blown you know, the sort of the way in which things cut both ways, these remarkable evidences of our past and who we are actually in the present. So you're having past and present meeting. And then the way these things represent something so powerful that they have to either be preserved, you know, conserved, or brutalised and destroyed. Well, on that subject, Philida, I mean, what's your position around the current debate about the statues in Britain? Yes, I, I think I can understand removing them from public places. The ones which can be traced back to a sort of... A slavery or, yeah, and, but I think they should be... Um, kept in museums as historical records. I belong to that school of thought rather than uh, totally destroying them because I think we have to, we have to face up to our histories. Um, and there's a, that's a very live debate going on all around the world yes. about where, where yeah. these objects in, um, in universal museums, where they, where they belong. Do they belong here or do they belong mm. from whence they came? What, what's mm. your view? I, I suppose, idealistically, it's incredible to have access to these objects and learn about as many different cultures and many different traje trajectories of human endeavour and ways of living. I think that's hugely important. I think one of the political tra tragedies that can happen, and we've experienced it here, is isolation, you know, where you don't let the rest of the world in. So I think these objects serve that incredible purpose of informing us of, you know, wonderful and terrifying acts of human behavior. Yeah. And, uh, but whether those objects, whether there couldn't be some way in which objects can be constantly traveling the world, I don't know, I don't know. Well, you mentioned, of course, that, that quite a lot of this collection you know, plaster casts. Mm. So they are copies. Yes. Um, that, that's an option, I suppose, with 3D printing nowadays. That, exactly. That, you, you know, yes. one could create a, a copy yeah. of it for this country and then return to, to somewhere else or, you know, vice versa. I mean, mm. they, they can be that sort of fluidity and generosity. Well, they? I think it brings 
us to something I was discussing earlier about virtual, the virtual world and the real world. And um, I almost feel there's a question, like with wildlife programmes or television, having this sort of incredible gloss on them, you know, where you see animals in their actual environments. And then you go to the zoo and look, stare at an empty cage because the animals are all asleep or, you know, it's not their feeding time. Is there a now, has the virtual, the skills of the virtual world created a kind of disappointment in reality, you know, where maybe, unfortunately, I think, the, the virtual world can show things in a way that the real world can't, you know. And I think that's, that's, I think that's going to be an issue for museums, I feel, and maybe even for the visual arts as a whole. Well, an know. issue for a sculptor, certainly. Yeah, and a sculptor yeah. such, as, such as you, who works with a myriad of materials, and actually mm. the whole point, in a way, of strikes me of your sculpture is it's all about the real world. It's about, mm. to, to a certain extent, the vernacular. Mm. I've got a little quote here. You got, there's a show of your work on uh, Has to Kunst, I think, in Munich. Yeah. And I looked on the webpage, and it's, it's wonderful how it sort of introduces it. Have you read it? I, I'll read it. It says, With this major retrospective of the work of the British sculptor Philida Barlow, born 1944, Has to Kunst t- um, 2021 opens a series of exhibitions in the museum's East Wing dedicated to contemporary female voices. That's you, Philida. Philida Barlow's sculptural structures are unwieldy and difficult to take in. Timber, cardboard, cement, clay, plastic pipes and colourful textiles pile up, spread out or block the visitor's way. The view ranges over these landscapes made of everyday materials, unsure what to hold on to and drifts up to grasp their enormous dimensions. Barlow's work pose a constant challenge. They conquer the space as if they led a life of their own. They invite viewers to reconsider spaces, perceive, reconsider the perception of volume and hear the language of architecture. Mm. So I suppose the, the question that begs from, from me is we're in this amazing library at mm. the Sir John Stone Museum, beautiful Georgian interior. Mm. What would you put in here? What Philip de Barlow sculpture would you put in here? I think I would do... Um I'll, I'll just um, tell a, a brief anecdote. I went to a collector's house in Mayfair and there was just everything under the sun there and she took me into the hallway which was about this size with a vast marble fireplace, incredible, incredible. And a, there was a Jeff Coons and there was, you know, a Robert Motherwell and a... Don Judd, you know, it was like kind of lucky dip of the 20th century, you know, <laughs> incredible, and lots of younger artists as well. And th- this sounds really arrogant, but sitting on the fireplace right in the middle between two enormous brass candlesticks, candelabras, was this very small black sculpture just with a, a spray on it. And I went, oh, I like that. And she looked at me in absolute astonishment and she said, that's yours. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you liked it. Exactly. (laughs) And I think I would like to do something like that in here, something that would just nestle in amongst, say, the the urns along the top, you know, a small object that was was different, but um, maybe 
was proud of its difference. How in interesting, because that, that brings us on to sort of one of the main themes for a sculptor, one of the main problems as well, which is scale. Mm. So mm. Why, why that scale, why a small scale for this space, but a massive scale, for example, the Davines Gallery at Tate Britain? Well, I think um, the Davines space is magnificent. Mm. And I think there were several critics who called me a vandal, you know, and <laughs> all sorts of things which you, when you read those words, you, you the sort of... It's quite aggressive language. Yes, yes. Um, sort of feel ashamed, you know, <laughs> and, and shocked. But I think it wasn't meant to be aggressive in that way. It was meant to be, in a way... No, I mean, their language was aggressive. Yes, exactly, yeah, and yeah. I, I, I hadn't meant the work to, no. to invite that kind of response. It was more, I'm not going to... I'm going to make something that doesn't touch this architecture, but is, in a way, um, counteracting it, in order, perhaps, to respect it, you know. And so I put these very kind of rigid square structures in all the whole way down and then hung mainly wood if i remember right yeah that's right yeah mm. well done and then and then hung sculptures off them with two things in mind one is was to integrate the audience into the work as much as possible so there was nothing on the ground i think there were two pieces that used the ground but the yeah. idea was not to use the ground but to in a way make everything be very airborne and so that the audience would have the opportunity to maybe look up through across as as a total experience and that perhaps because it's a kind of avenue that you walk through that maybe the works would be passed rather quickly that they wouldn't be there to be contemplated it would just be a total presence very much in the way that I'm treating this building yes. and uh, I think that then meant reaching right up into the into the vault of that space in order to create that offer that dramatic theatrical experience that it was the two works it was the original building and then what had been in a way transplanted into that building so was part of your objective so it's a, you know, it's a huge Victorian Yes. gallery right yes. in the middle of Tate Britain. You walk up the stairs, there it is, it's, mm. it's, and it's enormous. Was, was part of your I, um, thinking to, to have people actually look up into that, into, yes. into that yes. void, yes. To, to look at that, that ceiling, which actually is and very also to, in a way, the objects would be kind of controlling that movement of the audience, so yes. they would perhaps be prompting that physical... Um, symbiosis with the objects that they were avoiding or moving around with looking at the rest of the building and um, I suppose in a way that's what I've that's why I use space in that way is it's a kind of adventure that I want to take the objects on it's not necessarily being somebody who's like Richard Serra who just wants just wants the huge object Yes. In fact, I'm not particularly interested in bigness <laughs> in itself. I'm more interested in climbing into the spaces and 
allowing us, our physical selves, to, in a way, go on that imaginative journey. That's it. So it's a bit like you were describing your relationship with coming in here, and you yes. actually see it like the inside of a sculpture. Yes. So what you're, I, I think you're saying is, sometimes the bigness of your work is, mm. is a, a practical measure to, to ensure there is a void in which people can get into. Exactly. Absolutely. And also, you know, rather than it being on one's eye line, that the whole, one's whole physical body is engaged in some way, the walking through, the looking up, the walking round, you know, that it's, it becomes... I always think, with me, there are three protagonists, you know, there's the space, yes. then there's the sculpture, but then there's the audience, yeah, and absolutely. my kind of hope is that the three come together. And when, you're, when you're making, do you have an audience in mind? No, no, when I'm making, it's quite... Uh, a private experience, you know, where it's just doing um, battle with the work. Yeah. And with these large works, there's always probably four other people involved as well. But with the smaller works, which is rarely the engine of the whole things, um, that's just me and, and the work, yeah. And yeah, you, I, you and a... Lump of stuff. Well, and a great big drill <laughs> <laughs> going into it. You're like a surgeon, you know. Just, well, I'm not a surgeon. I don't want to be treated by. I have to say, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm watching that process of yours, Philadelphia. Particularly when you're working with those smaller works, where you will create this sort of, I think it's reasonable to say, quite often quite a lumpen object, mm. Uh, mm. and it would be made of all sorts of different materials and and mm. sort of brought together with with plaster and mm. just you know, sort of a great big mess of a pudding of a piece. Mm. And, 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 but that's only its, that's the beginning of its life. Yes. Because yes. then you really get, you, you drill into it, you throw it on the floor, mm. you pull it apart. You, and, and it's quite extraordinary to watch. At what point, do, 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 at what point does, do, 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 do things start to resolve for you? Well, um, I think I'm very much of the non-finito um, school of artists where I don't know where things stop. And... Um, I think my whole relationship with that kind of pudding that you're talking about is actually trying to see whether the object will start to tell me where it wants to go. And in a way, that does happen. And that's, that's a good moment when that begins to find itself. So there is this... A lot of the works can begin as images through drawings, and a lot of the mm. works begin with just stuff, mm. and in a way not knowing what on earth is going to happen. Mm. It's, a, it's an unknown territory. And those are the ones that are often put through their most extreme paces to get, the other side, get to the other side of what it's meant to be. And the, when I start to use paint, I mean, when I, I've used paint since the 60s yeah. on sculpture, it was very much, um, it sort of served various functions, but it began to be, be a function where it was like the last action that happened. It was like closure. This can't go on any further. Um, originally, I started painting sculptures because I was intrigued by the sort of doppelganger that objects have. You can say, look at that door. Or you can say, look at that brown door. Yeah. And I'm interested in what we kind of see first when it's a nameable thing. Do we see 
a door or do we see the colour? And I, I think there are so many objects which play with that kind of trickery, but our brains are designed to create order out of that. Yes. You know? And I quite like yes. the bit before that, yes. which is fairly disorganised, where there's a state of unknownness about what something might be. Which is the nature of existence, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and with that in mind, I mean, I know there's nothing specific or, or, or pointed in, in, that, in that way about, about your work, but does it contain elements of metaphor and allegory? Um, well, I've, I've said it a million times. I never know what the subject of my work is, and that's what I love about this museum, because there is a psychological element here, I think. You know, I, I think Freud would have a field day. <laughs> but, I mean, what, what was in John Soane's mind? What, what was the psychology of these collections? And I think, for me... The actions of making are the subject, and they, they therefore do contain metaphor and allegory of maybe fragility and danger and um, the unknown, you know, all well, sorts or, or, of things. Or, for me, with your work, the, 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 the word which screams out to me most when I see your work is chance. Oh, that's nice, yes. You know, yeah. because it's, yeah. it, it's, you couldn't do it again. You yeah, hadn't no, done it before. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> I do get asked to repeat things and I can't because yeah. I can't remember what... I can't repeat that action. Because there's so, a certain element of improvisation about it, that you are, you are in it and responding to it. Yes, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's great because I, I've not used the word chance, but it is the sort of chancing one's luck and there's also other kinds of chances as well but yes. I think for me the word I've always used two words actually one is guess guessing yes. and and the other is risk you know yeah. and I I think guessing is a very underrated human quality you know whether you guess right or you guess wrong you know but there's something that's quite non-verbal about that in its original state, you know, do I go that way or that way? And there's nothing other than just guessing to, to tell you which way to go. Fork in the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. The, the riddle, yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to talk a bit about your career because it's unusual mm. in, in, in that, it, you know, you had this late career blossom, mm. bloom. <laughs> Um, and why? Why did that happen? Obviously, you were very busy teaching, and obviously, you, you, I know you brought up a family, but mm. other artists have done that too, and, mm. and, and, been, and had a profile all the way through. Mm. Other female sculptors, I'm thinking about Barbara Hepworth, mm. although she didn't necessarily look after her children as much as you looked after yours, but you take the point. Mm. Um, why do you think it was that your work only started to get the sort of recognition it, it, it now has? Mm. Really, really, when you retired in, in 2009? Mm. I, well, I, I've always kept going, and Fabian, my husband, and I, we were always incredibly sort of disciplined with the children growing up. And there were tough times. You know, the 80s was um, with a young family and n no secure teaching at that yeah. time. Five it children. Was, Five children, yes, it was tough. And uh, 
it may be very boring to say this, but I would, um, Fabian would have the mornings and I would have the afternoons and we just stuck to that yeah. rigidly. And I think it ingrained in both of us that it didn't matter whether you were exhibiting or not, or it was a kind of necessity to keep going because... To make. Yes, yeah. And it was the things that we would both set out to do, you know, early on. And we weren't going to let go of it. And even though it wasn't bearing any fruits, it was, there was a kind of steely determination to, to be an artist, you know, and hold and is, on to that. And, and that's what you were, even when you were teaching at the Slade, and you were teaching some fabulous people, I think you taught Douglas Gordon, Tacita Dean. Yeah, I always say I didn't teach them. Uh, had lovely conversations with them on the stairs and that kind of thing. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I mean, they were sort of too good to be taught, if you know what I mean, especially Tacita, you know, yeah. remarkable. Well, maybe the learning went both ways. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, you, in your mind's eye, in the way you, you, you thought of yourself, you were an artist, not an art teacher. Yes, I, I mean, I've never had that problem. I felt, always felt hugely privileged to be teaching in art schools. And teaching in art schools is, is an astonishing thing when it's going well. It's an oral tradition. Yeah. Nothing of what... I did as a teacher remains in any form whatsoever. And that goes for all art school too. So it's ephemeral. And it goes, and it goes back hundreds of years. Absolutely yeah. hundreds of years. And yeah. I, I think in that way, there's a kind of freedom in how art schools offer education that is philosophical, it's speculative, it's about imagination, mm. and it's about feeling and psychology so it's about all the things that governments just want to stamp out <laughs> and eradicate you know? and um, so in that way they are these warehouses of just extraordinary ideas and thoughts and yes the intangible yes and the mm. the teaching of all the great skills of how you stretch a canvas, you know, what you should do with oil paint or casting and things. Yes. They unfortunately have sort of diminished rather. And I suppose I'm old school in that respect. I wish, I wish there was some kind of basic skills programs in art schools. I think they are, there are huge amounts of um, digital stuff. And I think various institutions are setting up making laboratories now so I think it is returning yeah. in a very very new way you know the whole issue around crafts yeah. and skills sorry this is is this, I, no, I, I is thought, this getting very boring no no I, I just remember I was talking to one very well-known painter who is is mid-career so 40s who trained at the RA and she felt like you that that sort of that element of so, so, so not a classical education but certainly an education which was steeped in understanding the processes of making and making mm. was very important to her work and so she worked in the life room and there was nobody else in there it was one of her, all these great facilities and nobody really there so it was just it was marvelous so that point that you know the, the, yes. the education has moved away from but but actually a lot of artists still want to work in what you one might talk, so. talk about an old-fashioned yeah. way. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, Slade had this phenomenal life from that was like, I mean, I 
for me, I hated it. It was like a sort of religious, silent place, you know, it was the old kind of Ewan Uglow and um, Euston Road one. Yes. It was just um, extraordinary. And I, I think it was excellent that it was there and that these counter traditions are set up against each other and create these friction rather than being a didactic sort of progressive yeah, system. Yeah, sort of a linear. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so what happened, Philida? What happened in your, oh, yes. your mid-60s? Yeah, what suddenly, did happen? <laughs> so, suddenly, I, you, you burst onto the scene. You know, what, you know, what, what precipitated it? Well, I think the, the Serpentine, um, Hans Ulrich Obris and um, Julia Peyton-Jones, for some reason, went to a few exhibitions I was having in 2009, 10. Yeah, just as you were retiring um, from the slave. Yes, yeah. But I'd, I'd always exhibited throughout that mm. time, but in, in strange, off-the-beaten-track places. But they tracked one down, and they, she rang up one day and just said they wanted to do a studio visit. And I've had disastrous studio visits, you know, just where people come in and and they do that thing that I think ought to be forbidden when people do <laughs> studio visits. They sort of look at my sink in my studio and go, oh my God, isn't that amazing? <laughs> Meanwhile, the studio is full of work. It's, it's, an, old, it's an old butler sink, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they came and it was it was great and they then the next thing they did the next day was rang up and said we want you to show in April next year which I think was four months away yeah. and so I did and then Hauser and Worth went to that show and would then they came and did a visit which I think was also hilarious because I think you know I work in this very very narrow studio at home and I think they had not expected that that sort of artist, you know, who's just stayed in one place and made the work and it's just piled up around them. I mean, I suppose it looked in a way eccentric, old fashioned and um, precarious in some way, but they were, they said, would I, would I like them to represent them? So I, I just said yes. <laughs> See, well, it's like having a great publisher, isn't it? Yes. You know, yes. Just, it, you know yeah. it, it gives you an opportunity you would otherwise not yeah. have. But it always makes me have a very moral attitude that if you want to write a book and it never gets published, you should still be incredibly proud that you've written that book. And I think that goes for all the arts. Yes. You know, just because something's exhibited doesn't mean that it's the greatest thing on earth. You no, know. better or worse than anything else necessarily. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That when, when I go into the studio, it's exactly the same as every other artist going into the studio. <laughs> yes, I do know. Yeah. Because you know, you've, as you described, the way you were <laughs> discovered, so to speak, mm -hmm. although you'd been around for ages, but suddenly mm -hmm. put on this international platform and seen mm. around the world and suddenly all these rich collectors who live in Mayfair mm. you know, are, are buying your work. Um, there's an element of luck to all that. Mm. You, mm. Know, you know, a studio visit, one person saw it and one thing leads to another. Yes. How, but also, it could all end tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for the graft 
because that doesn't scare me, you know, and I, I don't feel I've got to hang on to something. Um, I feel there's enough there to sustain me, whatever the circumstances. Yes, you have the ballast. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. So how did it feel, or how, what was your response um, when you were invited to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2017? Sort of shock, because it was right in the middle of Brexit. And I, I think my initial thought was, what am I representing, you know? And um, how do I... What is Great Britain? Exactly. Does, does it actually exist? Or um, Yeah, so that was... And then... I think I began to think about the little pavilion and that it was like a folly, you know, a little post-colonial folly. And that became the title of the work. And um, it blended in very well with all sorts of notions I have about sculpture, which we see here, you know, the folly of something being a cast. So there's an original somewhere else, you know, this, these games that the sculptural object can play at pretending to be something yeah. uh, when it isn't, you know. And I, I love that about it. I love that theatrical side of it. So that very much started to take over with the Venice, the Venice work. We, we can't finish this conversation without discussing briefly materials. Mm. Because, you know, when you, people used to think about sculpture, they used to think about people carving wood or carving stone or carving marble. And then I suppose, I mean, I'm, you know much more about this than I do, but, you know, you think about people like David Smith maybe coming in in America in, mm. in, in the 50s, and I suppose you could argue Duchamp earlier than that when sort of uh, what could be art ch changed. You mm. know, art was allowed to be almost anything and it could be made from mm. pretty much anything. Um, you know, and Tony Cairo then picked up on, on those mm. sort of ideas over, over in, in, in the UK. But your, your materials are such a um, fundamental part of your work, not just for me because of the objects you create with them, mm. but the actual process of selection. Mm. Well, I'm going to, yeah, I mean, I think my, I work in an incredibly traditional way. I think if I said, you know, yes, it's all very unique, that other sculptors would just laugh me out of town. It's not. And I think. You know, you think of Arte Povera, yes. which really changed all sorts of aspects of sculptural language, from using steam through to neon, you name it, to... Old rags. Yes, exactly. And, and, and um, that had a huge impact on me, you know. that I think the origins of everything with me is clay, a modelling with clay. So anything that can be crushed or pushed or pulled is what I like. And on the whole... Quite honestly, I'm not, I'm not that interested in materials. I'm interested in actions mm. and being able to get materials that will do actions, like all the plasters, all the powder to liquid materials are great, and all the chic materials like fabrics, paper, etc. They all have this kind of inherent versatility about them. And that's, that's really my relationship with me. I'm not a great researcher who wants to <coughs> find the latest plastics or um, materials that are coming in chemically or anything like that. I'm not 
I'm not interested in, in spending days trying to find some very special kind of aesthetic look. I just want to be able to use materials that will do the job in hand, if that makes any sense. Yes, and what is the job in hand? What, you, what are you making? I think I'm making a kind of evidence of maybe a moment or a thought or perhaps something I've caught sight of that I want to replicate, but I'm interested in the journey it might go on in, through that process of replication. So back to chance again. Yes, chance. Yeah. And evidence. I'm interested in how we evidence ourselves on this world. Yes. So you, <laughs> What remains. Well, indeed. <laughs> um, so you make these works out of, out, of, out of plaster, might be string, might be fabric, mm. lots of wood. Um, and and it's, it's, the way you construct the pieces um, has a fragility to it because mm. they, they look like they might collapse. Uh, or they, or maybe they look like they're just emerging. It could mm. be, be mm. either way. Um, uh, there is a formality to them and an informality to them. In your own mind, are, are they objects of regeneration or degeneration? They're both. It's that cycle that I am interested in. Something that's fugitive, and you're uncertain about whether it's coming or going. And I think that's. Exactly that reparation, regeneration, and in a way, destruction the way they all combine, not only from a human point of view, but from the point of view of nature as well. Yes. So everything is in that state of either being at its most perfect or on either side of that. <laughs> Well, we look forward to you, your work in the, in the Sohn Museum, up between the, those <laughs> yes. pots. But for now, we, sh we should stop. Thank you so much. You've been well, a wonderful you. guest. We've you explored a lot of territory in a short amount of time. <laughs> thank and, you. And we thank look forward you. to your next show in Britain. When's your next show in the UK? Um, it's in Highgate Cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. <laughs> thank you very much, Villa de Barlow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the talk, it would be great if you would consider making a contribution which would enable us to continue our wider educational programs, and you can do so on sown.org. We appreciate your support and look forward to welcoming you back to the Sown again soon.